everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. Litigators are generally creatures of habit. To avoid reinventing the wheel, we use what we believe has worked in the past for ourselves and our colleagues. As a result, we use form discovery requests, lists of affirmative defenses, and look at sample motions in limine. Most of us also provide the same guidelines to witnesses to prepare them to testify during depositions and trials. But is there a better way? My guest on today's show literally wrote the book on reinventing witness preparation and has for many years provided practical advice that goes against the grain of supposed time-honored advice. Of course, my guest is Kenneth Berman, and he's a partner in the litigation department of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, a law firm located in Boston, Massachusetts. He co-chairs the firm's business litigation practice group and the firm's pro bono committee. Ken is a seasoned litigator representing clients in complex business cases, intellectual property disputes, intra-company and intra-family disputes, and real estate and land use litigation. In addition to his active litigation practice, Ken is a popular author, columnist, and public speaker. He authored the acclaimed American Bar Association book, Reinventing Witness Preparation, Unlocking the Secrets to Testimonial Success. Ken also writes a regular quarterly column for litigation, the flagship litigation journal of the American Bar Association, and his column is published under the banner On Reconsideration and challenges time-honored assumptions and conventional wisdom about litigation tradecraft and legal disputes and suggests solutions to things most lawyers and judges are unaware might need fixing. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, as litigators, as I mentioned, we learn techniques from our mentors and managing attorneys, and we do things, well, because that's the way it's always been done. Preparing witnesses to testify at a deposition or trial is one of those techniques. We tell our clients, for example, not to volunteer answers, to not guess the answers to questions, to answer yes or no whenever possible. Can we do a better job? Well, Dave, not only can we do a better job, but the type of instructions you just mentioned, for the most part, send our clients and witnesses in the wrong direction. What you've described is the conventional or classic approach to witness preparation, which most litigators in the U.S. have been using for generations, and they still use it. That approach is based on the idea that the less information the client or friendly witness gives to the opposing lawyer, the better it will be for the client. It's rooted in the idea that the opposing lawyer's interrogation skills are superior to the witness's testifying skills. So let's not educate the opposing lawyer too much or give the opposing lawyer very much to work with. So for this reason, most lawyers give the client a whole bunch of directions to get them to give up as little information as possible. Things like, just answer the question and then stop. 
Don't volunteer information. Don't answer the question you think they should have asked but didn't. Don't explain your answer. Leave that to me to get the explanations that I think are necessary. And it's okay to say, I don't know, I don't remember, and I don't understand the question. Nobody has a perfect memory and nobody knows everything. So if you don't know something or you don't remember something, just say so. And by the way, when those instructions are given, they're generally given in a way to encourage the client to use those answers liberally. And so what happens when the client gets to testify is you hear them say, I don't know, I don't remember, and I don't understand the question a lot more than they would say in ordinary conversation. So those instructions, uh, in my experience, are responsible for a great deal of very bad testimony. They make clients so afraid of giving the wrong answer that they don't often give the right answer. They take away the client's confidence and make the client nervous about the testimonial experience. They make the client afraid of every question and insecure about how to answer them. And what's worse is that those instructions force clients into learning a new way to process questions and to apply an unnatural set of instructions that's very different from how we answer questions in our day-to-day -day experience in social and business settings. Instead, we really want our clients to reserve their mental energy for more important testimonial tasks, like formulating truthful, context-specific answers that support the theme of the case. We want our clients to be comfortable with the testimonial experience so that it's easy to talk about the issues in a way that actually helps their cases and establishes a connection with the fact finder. Unfortunately, in conventional witness preparation, the goal is a modest one. The aim is just to make sure that the client doesn't hurt the case. But the irony is that the conventional instructions lead clients to give answers that are so short or so evasive that they actually help the other side. By contrast, the goal of enlightened preparation, the type of preparation that I wrote about in my book, is to put points on the scoreboard, to give truthful answers that help the witness's case without leaving any misleading impressions. We want the answers to advance the client's case, not to advance the opposing lawyer's case. And that's where I think we need to reframe the conversation. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned making sure that the client is comfortable because what we're doing when we ask them to give their deposition or to testify at trial is we're taking them out of their comfort zone and putting them in a very aggressive, confrontational environment. And then we're asking them to essentially use language that they would never use in general conversation. So I think it's a really interesting point that you raise concerning, you know, we just got to make sure that our clients are comfortable and, and make the points that we think they should make. And it's an interesting dichotomy that you raise. Well, uh, yes, it is. And the problem with testimony generally is that people get nervous when they testify. So the objective of enlightened witness preparation is to get them comfortable with the testimonial experience. And when we answer questions in a social setting or in a business setting, we typically know not only what is being asked, but why it's being asked. And so when we give an answer to a question, we answer not only the what of the question, but the why of the question. Our brains are wired to work that way. 
in the conventional approach to witness preparation, lawyers try to get their clients to interrupt that process, not to answer questions that way. So they're sending them to a deposition or they're putting them on the stand where they're going to be cross-examined with this set of instructions, which is counterintuitive to how they process language. Now, the thing is that witnesses have only a limited budget of attention. Do we want that attention to be spent on how they're going to apply these counterintuitive instructions about how to answer questions? In other words, don't answer the why of the question, answer only the what and then stop. Or to say, I don't know, or I don't remember if there's something about the question that you don't know or you don't remember. Is that what we want our witnesses and clients to do when they're giving testimony? Or do we really want them to spend their limited budget of attention on how to frame the best answer, the most appropriate answer, the truthful answer, the complete answer, the one that doesn't leave the misleading impression, so that they're actually advancing the ball and supporting the theme of the case. In my approach to witness preparation, that's where I want my witnesses to go, and that's what I want to have them do when they're on the stand. So let me ask you, uh, one other thing you talked about is leaving it to the attorney who's presenting the witness to get out the information you need on redirect. And really, I think a lot of attorneys would say, well, no matter what answers our clients give, can't we just clean up their testimony on redirect? Why is that thinking faulty? Well, you have to understand that good witness preparation is an ounce of prevention and redirect is a pound of cure. Redirect is the time for the lawyer to make repairs, to rehabilitate the witness, to undo the damage that opposing counsel did on cross. If a lawyer needs to conduct redirect, it means the witness has been injured by definition. It would be so much better, I think, to prevent the injury in the first place than to have to rely on redirect. We want the witness to give the best answer to the question the first time the question is asked, whether in a deposition or a trial. That's the goal of good witness preparation. Now, when we talk about redirect, redirect is often necessary because sometimes a witness will say something that absolutely must be cleaned up, but it's an inferior way to clean up the messes that the witness leaves behind on cross-examination. And I say this because while a client is being cross-examined, the lawyer for the client is multitasking in the extreme to be able to figure out what answers need to be cleaned up on redirect and how to do it. So here's what the lawyer for the witness is doing when the lawyer is being cross-examined. The lawyer is taking notes of the testimony, putting an asterisk, next to all the answers that are problematic or that might need to be cleaned up, and making a note of what the lawyer would like the witness to say on redirect when they get to it. That's typically what happens when the witness is being cross-examined. But here's what else is going on while the lawyer is doing that. The lawyer is listening to the cross-examiner's question to see if an objection needs to be made. And that is essentially a four-step process between the question and the answer. So the lawyer is thinking, one, will that answer hurt me enough to make it important that I object to the question? Two, what's the likelihood that the objection will be sustained? Because if it's not sustained, then it looks like the lawyer was trying to hide something from the jury. Three, should I make the objection anyway to preserve my rights on appeal? And four, 
if I make that objection and it's overruled, will the jury think I was trying to hide something or will they think that the information harms my case? Then when the answer comes out, the lawyer is thinking, did that answer hurt me enough that I'll need to clean it up on cross? They're thinking, do I know what the witness will say when I ask the question on cross? Because if the lawyer doesn't know what the witness's answer will be, let's say they're on cross-examination and the lawyer says, you recall on direct testimony, you said X, why did you say X? Or what was it about X that caused you to do Y? If the lawyer doesn't know the answer to that question, the witness's answer could actually make the testimony even worse. And then the lawyer is also thinking, what's the chance that the witness will give the right answer instead of some answer that will make the problem worse? Meanwhile, while that thought process is going on in the witness's lawyer's mind, the interrogating lawyer is putting the next question to the witness. So the witness's lawyer is simultaneously doing the mental steps needed to figure out if an objection should be made, while also trying to figure out whether or not this is some, the answer that was just given is something that needs to be cleaned up. So I put the question as, wouldn't it be so much easier if the witness simply gave the best, most complete, and most helpful, truthful answer to the question during the cross or in the deposition, rather than a short, unexplained answer that needs to be cleaned up on redirect? And I think the answer to that question is pretty obvious. Well, I think those are tremendous points, Ken, and um, your book kind of lays out how to help your witness make her first answer be the best answer. Can you give us some highlights on how we can help our witnesses do that? Sure. Let me give you the Reader's Digest version because there's a lot to this, but here's the shorthand version. Instead of treating preparation as the time for the lawyer to download a set of wooden instructions to the client, the way that people do it in conventional preparation. It's better to use the time in large measure to have the client upload information to the lawyer. Now, I break effective witness preparation into three phases. In phase one, the lawyer should be asking the client questions about the facts and the issues in the case. This is when we're getting the client to upload information to the lawyer. And there are three goals in this first phase of witness preparation. First, it educates the lawyer as to the client's testimonial skills and also to the client's knowledge of the facts and the issues. And it also identifies any problem areas that the lawyer will need to work on with the client. Second, it gets the client comfortable talking about the case. And we want that to happen. We want to give the client a lot of practice in talking about the case so they get easy with talking about it and talking about the issues. They get facile with the way they frame their answers so that this is not an experience that they're going to have to be afraid of when they uh, get into the witness chair. And third, it helps to build the client's confidence in handling the testimonial process and confidence in the lawyer's ability to guide the client safely through the process. So that's phase one. Phase two is the time for the lawyer to discuss the theme of the case and the sensitive issues in the case as the lawyer sees it and as the lawyer understands it. Now, when I talk about the theme of the case, understanding the theme is essential 
to giving good testimony. So what is the theme? The theme is a sentence or two that encapsulates the claim or the defense in an emotionally appealing, easy to understand way. And it's the lawyer's job to come up with a theme. Uh, now, I'm sure you can devote a whole podcast to theme development, but the witness needs to understand the theme because the theme acts like a homing signal. So if the witness is ever lost on the witness stand, they can just remember the theme of the case and give an answer that brings that testimonial ship into port. And the witness also needs to understand the sensitive issues in the case so that they know how to navigate around them uh, and to do it safely. Um, so that happens in phase two of witness preparation. And then phase three, uh, the lawyer will take the client through a practice question and answer session. Now, this is the time for the lawyer to ask the questions that the lawyer thinks the opposing counsel will ask, listen very carefully to how the client answers them, evaluate the answers, and give the client feedback on them, not just on the content, but also on the delivery, because delivery and style is very important in nonverbal communication, which goes on in a courtroom. It also goes on when a witness is being videotaped for their deposition. So in this process of asking the witness the questions that the opposing lawyer is likely to ask, the witness will get comfortable answering the questions, but the lawyer will also be able to suggest ways in which the witness might be able to reframe the question or handle the question better. And that's really uh, a vital process, which will sharpen the witness's testimonial skills. So the client should understand that the goal is to answer the questions truthfully and completely without leaving a misleading impression. And in a way that establishes a rapport or connection with the fact finders, and frankly, to make it easier for the fact finders to do their job. Because the fact finders want to know what happened, and that's what the witness is there to do, to help the fact finder understand what happened in the best way the witness can. If you have an evasive or an undercommunicative witness, that will frustrate the fact finder and make it harder for the witness to come out on top. As you were talking, Ken, I, I kind of was thinking about theme development. And, you know, oftentimes in cases that I do on the defense side, your theme or your defense might shift over time where you, you know, you start in a case, your defense might change from that moment and the first time your client is deposed until you get to trial and then you actually present your defense to the jury or, or to the judge. And I think some litigators might object to your strategy um, in terms of witness preparation and say, well, we actually don't know what our theme or defense is going to be at trial. So it's best to make sure that the client is as unresponsive or uncommunicative as possible to make sure we're not giving giving anything away to the plaintiff or committing to something that we might uh, abandon later at trial. How would you respond to that type of objection? Yeah. So there are lots of lawyers who believe that, who believe that the time for the client to give the full story is at trial. And in deposition, what you really want to do is you want to shut down uh, your client as much as possible, say only the minimum in a deposition, because you don't want to educate the opposing lawyer. But depositions are used for three purposes. 
a lawyer takes a deposition, one, to find out what the witness will say, two, to gather testimony that can be used for a summary judgment motion or a dispositive motion, and three, to nail the witness down to a story so that if the witness tries to vary from the story at trial, from what the witness said in the deposition, the lawyer will be able to take out the deposition, show that the witness gave a different answer or a shorter answer, and use that to impeach the witness's credibility and make it look like the witness has just made up this answer for the purposes of the trial. The idea that the witness should uh, give as little testimony as possible speaks only to the first of those three purposes, namely to educate the opposing counsel. So the lawyer thinks that if the witness, if the client can do a real good job in not educating the lawyer on the other side, then success will have been achieved. The goal of that deposition will have been achieved from the witness's perspective. The problem is, is that that philosophy ignores the other two purposes of the deposition, namely getting some evidence that can be used for a summary judgment and the impeachment value of, of the testimony. So you really do want the witness to give the best answer and most helpful answer during the deposition, because if the witness gives a very short answer, one which really doesn't speak to the whole question, then that answer can be used as fodder in the interrogator's summary judgment motion. And then the witness is left having to try to explain the answer but that answer, the explanation in an affidavit might be stricken if the judge thinks that that actually contradicts the testimony that was given in the deposition. Similarly, if the answer is just a very short clipped answer in the deposition, the lawyer will take out that deposition transcript at the time of trial and it will make matters worse for the witness. So I believe that the goal of enlightened witness preparation is to make sure that the witness answers the question the same way in the deposition as they would at trial, because it's just as important in the deposition. We've seen many cases where a witness has given a yes or a no answer in a deposition when the question really called for an explanation. That yes or no answer created a misleading impression. The question and the answer was read at trial, and the, the client in that case really suffered uh, as a consequence, and the trial uh, ended up with a bad result. So I don't believe that theme development being an ongoing process is a reason to counsel clients to uh, shut down during depositions. In fact, if a lawyer thinks that theme development is something that is constantly changing uh, throughout the life cycle of a lawsuit, uh, then I would say that the lawyer probably hasn't given enough thought to the theme before the deposition. By the time the depositions come around, a lawyer should really know what the case is about, and a lawyer should have a pretty good idea of what the theme of the claim or the defense really is. Well, you know, for me, one of the most interesting parts of your book, Reinventing Witness Preparation, was your advice concerning why witnesses should not just answer the question asked, but instead should improve on the question when answering. Can you give us an example of how this works? Sure. Uh, let's talk about two things. Let's talk about the misleading yes or no question. And let's also talk about the ambiguous question. So what is a misleading yes or no question? It's when two meanings occupy the same question at the same time. Many yes or no questions have a surface meaning and they also have a subsurface meaning. So if 
the witness answers the question just as asked and then stops with either a yes or a no, the witness is answering the surface meaning of the question. But that same answer will serve a dual purpose. It will also serve as the answer to the subsurface question. What do I mean by the subsurface question? The subsurface question is the question that brings out the inferences and conclusions that the listener is likely to draw based on how the question is worded. So those inferences and conclusions will help the interrogator and not the witness. So let me give you an example. Let's say the suit is about a machine that malfunctioned and the plaintiff got injured as a result of the malfunctioning of the machine. And a question is put to, say, a supervisor in the factory. This question, you never told my client that the machine shouldn't be operated for more than three minutes at a time, did you? Now, that's a question where there are two meanings occupying that same question at the same time. On the surface, it's only asking whether the supervisor ever told the injured plaintiff that the machine shouldn't be operated for more than three minutes at a time. But underneath, what it's really asking is, did you give my client all of the appropriate safety instructions that my client needed in order to be able to operate that machine safely? So in asking the question, the lawyer is trying to create the impression that the witness held back some important information that his client needed to know. And a naked no, if that were the answer to that question, that would permit that inference. But an explained no would not permit the inference. So if the witness were really to answer that question in the way that I would teach the witness to answer the question, the witness would say, remember the question is, you never told my client that the machine shouldn't be operated for more than three minutes at a time, did you? An enlightened witness would answer the question this way. I didn't have to. There was a conspicuous warning label on the machine itself, and our safety engineer reviews all the safety protocols, including that one, during employee orientation and at quarterly meetings as well. So that's one example of how a yes or no answer to a simple question can leave a misleading answer and how the witness should deal with that by giving a more explanatory answer, what I call the explained no or the explained yes. Then we come across the ambiguous question, uh, and that often involves the same problem. It's a problem of unwanted false inferences that uh, the question can induce because of the way the question is worded. But the technique to address it is slightly different. So an example of an ambiguous question, let's say you're dealing with an employment case that alleges religious discrimination. And the boss is on the stand and the plaintiff's lawyer says to the boss, you fired my client after you learned that he was a Muslim. Isn't that right? Now, that question is ambiguous because the word after is often transformed subconsciously into the word because. So a listener would hear that question as you fired my client because you learned that he was a Muslim. Isn't that right? And also, the question uses a loaded or ambiguous verb, the word fired, which could mean letting someone go as part of a prudent business decision, 
but it could also be subconsciously transformed into a different meaning, such as a sudden impulsive decision to terminate an employee as an irrational and unjust reaction to something without having a justifiable reason. So what should the witness do when they get a question like that? It's an ambiguous question. It would be dangerous to answer the question, yes, because of the inferences that should be drawn. So what I recommend is that when you get an ambiguous question like this, the witness, instead of saying, I don't understand the question, which is what the conventional preparation teaches. And by the way, if the witness says, I don't understand the question, but the fact finder would understand the question, then it will look like the witness is being evasive. So instead of saying, I don't understand the question, it would be better strategically for the witness to reframe the question, to eliminate the ambiguity and answer the question, which is on point and address the topic of the question, but putting it in the words that the witness is comfortable with. And the way that you reframe a question is very simple. It's by saying, if you're asking me X, the answer is Y. So in this particular example, the witness could say, if you're asking me whether I terminated his employment because he was a Muslim, the answer is no. But he did tell me a year earlier that he was a Muslim. That had nothing to do with why I had to let him go. By the way, by reframing the question, the witness is taking control of the testimony and control over the direction of the testimony and can, with a reframed question, give the preferred answer in the way that puts the answer in the correct light and with the proper context. Really interesting tips, Ken. And I also wanted to ask you about uh, the memories of witnesses. Oftentimes, we, I've heard litigators tell their clients, well, if you don't 100% remember something, it's okay to say, I don't recall. Is there anything wrong with that? Can witnesses get in trouble? Um, can our cases get into trouble um, if we recommend that our clients do that? Uh, well, yes, there's a lot that's wrong with that and a lot of trouble. It's dangerous, especially if the fact finder would expect the witness to have a memory. The reason why it's a dangerous answer is because many fact finders hear, I don't recall, and think that the witness is feigning a lack of memory to avoid disclosing a harmful truth. We see this on TV, we see it in the movies, we see it in the news when people are testifying before Congress and they're asked an uncomfortable question and they say, I don't recall. So culturally, we're acclimated to process the answer, I don't recall, in that fashion. And so when a witness answers a question that the fact finder would expect the witness to have a memory of, I don't recall can just seem so evasive. And evasiveness is a credibility killer. Unfortunately, that answer comes out of the mouths of witnesses who have been conventionally prepared. And it comes out often because in conventional preparation, witnesses are told that they shouldn't be bashful about saying, I don't recall. But what if a witness can't actually remember something? Is it, is it okay to say, I don't recall at that moment? Or is there something that the witness should be saying instead? Well, here I think that we can take a lesson from President Reagan. Uh, you may remember that during the Iran-Contra scandal, President Reagan had given conflicting answers to whether he had prior knowledge of the scheme to sell weapons to Iran 
using Israel as a middleman and then funneling the proceeds to rebels in Nicaragua. At one point, he said that he knew about that. And at another point, he said that he knew about part of it, but he wasn't sure about the rest. And then he was asked that question a few weeks later. And uh, by that time, he had already gotten into some serious political embarrassment as a result of his earlier two answers. So when he was asked the question the third time, a, a few weeks later, he said this. In trying to recall events that happened 18 months ago, I'm afraid that I let myself be influenced by others' recollections, not my own. I have no personal notes or records to help my recollection on this matter. The only honest answer is to state that try as I might, I cannot recall anything whatsoever about whether I approved an Israeli sale in advance or whether I approved replenishment of Israeli stocks around August of 1985. My answer, therefore, and the simple truth is, I don't remember, period. Now, the less, that was a brilliant answer on Reagan's part. And there were a lot of people who thought that it was an incredible answer because he had earlier admitted that he had some memory. But there were a lot of people in the country who actually took him at his word and felt sorry for him and actually did think that he was confused on the earlier two occasions. So the lesson from this is that if the witness truly can't recall, the witness should say it with a little bit of an explanation, a bit of an apology, and a measure of humility and earnestness. In other words, the witness should come across as if the witness is really trying to search their memory and really wants to answer the question, but they just can't. And that probably is the best way to deal with a witness who absolutely has no memory. However, the better thing for the witness to do is to refresh recollection before they testify, to read the relevant documents, to do what they need to do in order to be able to uh, testify with a refreshed memory, because a refreshed memory is actually one of the best tools that the witness has in the witness's toolbox to give superior testimony. Ken, we are nearing the end of our time together and wanted to hear any final thoughts you might have. And I think your book is so comprehensive that I do want to remind our listeners that if you're interested in reading Ken's book, Reinventing Witness Preparation or Purchasing One for the Young Lawyers in Your Life, folks can go to ambar.org slash litigation and click on that Publications tab where you can find information on the books sold by the section. And don't forget that members of the litigation section save 20% on all section published books, which of course includes Reinventing Witness Preparation. So Ken, did you have any final thoughts that you had for our listeners? Yes. Uh, before I get to my final thought, I just uh, should say that if they are interested in buying the book, they can also go to reinventingwitnesspreparation.com, and there are links there that will get them to the same place, and that might be an easier route. But uh, yeah, uh, the thing is that answers matter. It's not just the content of the answers, but how they're delivered. And it takes only one bad answer for a jury to send someone to jail or to rule against a party who really ought to win. Answers are hugely consequential, and witnesses need lawyers who will prepare them the right way. Because of the way that a case can be so screwed up if a witness gives a wrong answer, and because a right answer can be so consequential in uh, leading the witness or leading the client to victory, 
We need to understand that witness preparation is one of the most important aspects of law practice. Unfortunately, most lawyers practice an antiquated method of witness preparation that's ill-suited for preparing clients to put their best testimonial foot forward. So if we want to give our clients the top-tier help that they hire us to give them, then as a profession, we need to abandon the methods of the past and prepare our clients in a more enlightened way. So thank you, Dave, for having me on the show and for letting your listeners know about my book, which I hope will really help them improve their game. Thanks very much. Excellent. Well, thank you. And uh, I think you gave a lot of answers that matter uh, to the questions that I had. And I'm sure folks will definitely look at your book as a great resource because it sounds like we need to really challenge all of the assumptions that we have had with respect to witness preparation. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Dave. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing global litigation and investigations at Tyson Foods, Inc. in Springdale, Arkansas. It's great to have you back, Daryl. Thanks a lot, Dave. Glad to be back. All right. So I understand you have a quick tip regarding discovery today. Yeah. uh, What I want to do today is really kind of piggyback. I know I did some discovery tips in the past, but quite interesting. I was preparing for today's tip to talk about protecting third parties information through discovery. And I actually got hit with a third party subpoena today at work. So I think this is very timely today. Awesome. So, yeah, so I want to dive right in and talk about how we want to protect third parties uh, and their confidential information and discovery. I was actually reading an article a few weeks ago that is by a friend of mine, Kristen Dobard, and, and we, we talked about this issue and, and kind of looked at the ABA model rules and how to address the issue. And we basically talked about it and she turned it into an article. So, Oftentimes, we may receive discovery from opposing counsel that's requesting some sensitive information like personnel files or anything like that. And so when we get these requests, we want to basically sit back and do two things. We want to ask ourselves whether this information is relevant and whether the production will lead to the discovery of relevant information when we get these uh, subpoenas or these discovery requests. Once you get that, you really want to kind of look and see whether or not it's relevant. But if it is, you may be compelled by the court to provide that information. And sometimes that includes providing sensitive third party information. So although this person may not be your client, you want to look into protecting that third party's interests, even though you do not represent them. So the tip today is really going to talk about how do you go about protecting that third party's uh, information and protecting that third party individual. There is a ABA model rule of professional conduct that we should look at that lawyers do have a duty to protect third parties and should use every effort to do so. That's rule 4.4. In that rule 4.4, there's a comment that basically says the responsibility to a client requires a lawyer to subordinate the interests of others to those of the client. But that responsibility does not imply that a lawyer may disregard the rights of third persons. It is impractical to catalog all such rights, but they include legal restrictions on methods of obtaining evidence from third persons and unwarranted intrusions into privileged relationships such as the client lawyer relationship. And 
the way that we go about doing that, when you do receive that discovery request, you should first do what I would say is object to the discovery request if you think it's not relevant. And so in objecting, you should ask yourself, is this information relevant to the instant suit? and whether the request is reasonably calculated to lead to admissible evidence. If the answer to this question is no, you should object on the grounds of relevancy and state thoroughly why the request is not relevant. In responding, you want to make sure that when you look at it and say that the requirement of the production is to produce sensitive information and why that information should not be disclosed, you want to offer a great objection and state why it should not be produced, why you believe that it is uh, confidential information and why you should protect the interests of that third person. However, if the third party information that is requested is relevant, you want to do two things to ensure, well, one of two things to ensure that you are protecting the interests of the third party once that information leaves your custody. Those two things are, one, you could either provide a confidentiality agreement among the attorney and the other parties, or you can petition the court for a protective order. So I want to talk about those two things and and things that will be involved in that. Sometimes if you're not petitioning the court for a protective order and you believe or have enough trust within the opposing counsel that you can enter into a confidentiality agreement, there are five things that you want to do before you produce that information and you enter into that confidentiality agreement. The first thing of the confidentiality agreement, you should clearly and broadly state what information is being asked and why that information is considered to be confidential. When you do that, you want to make sure that your confidentiality agreement is not ambiguous uh, and that it is very clear on what is being asked, why the information is confidential and what other information that will be outlined in that confidentiality agreement. Next, you should name the individuals who have permission to view this confidential information. And typically that is the lawyers that are involved in the matter and before the court. And you want to make sure that this information is kept secretly safe with the parties that are listed as individuals who have permission to review the information. The next thing you want to do is you want to state the obligations of the individuals privy to that confidential information and outline that within your agreement. The information should be protected and you want to inform how that information is going to be protected by the parties who are looking at the confidential information. Fourth, you want to outline what the consequences will be for a breach of the confidentiality agreement. Those things may entail, you know, information or or things such as costs, damages, or attorney's fees that may be related to enforcement of the court for an individual that breaches that confidentiality agreement. The next thing that you want to do, and this is the last thing that you want to ensure is within that confidentiality agreement, is that you want to inform the recipient of that information how that information is going to be destroyed at the conclusion of the case. If it is in paper form, you would want to ask that either that paper form be returned back to you as the original sender, or you would want to ask that that information be shredded via a shredding company or an actual shredder within the office. If that information, in fact, is provided electronically on ESI or electronically stored information, you want to ensure that whatever means was used to provide that electronic information to opposing counsel or the individual requesting that information that it is either, again, returned back to you, or if it's sent via email, you want to ensure that the emails are deleted and that that 
information is destroyed and no longer out in the ether. And so Again, just as a recap, the first thing you want to do is you want to broadly state why that information is considered to be confidential. The next thing you want to do is name the individuals who have privy to see that confidential information. Third, you want to state the obligations of the individuals who are privy to that information. Fourth, you want to outline the consequences for the breach of the confidentiality agreement. And lastly, you want to provide a means for destroying the information at the conclusion of the case. But if you don't want to take the confidentiality agreement route, there's always an opportunity to petition the court for a protective order, which will allow the court to weigh in on how that information is to be produced, when that information is to be produced, and how that information is to be used throughout the case and also destroyed at the end of the case. So, As a lawyer, you do have a duty and the responsibility to protect the rights of that third party information that may be confidential. You want to ensure that you are doing this so that the sensitive information is not disclosed out into the public during the discovery period and also as the case has ended. And Dave, I appreciate this time uh, to talk about protecting individuals' information that may be considered confidential on the show today. Thanks a lot. Well, that was really great, Daryl. I really appreciate the practical tips that you always give our audience. So thanks so much for your time and thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for our episode today. I want to thank our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera, for his help with guest preparation and booking. Thanks so much, Rich, for your great work. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the Litigation Section's Audio Content Committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True, as well as Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the Litigation Section. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Next time.